Hello, and welcome back to Ghost Divers, an anime podcast. Uh, I am your host, Neve, and I'm joined here by my co-host. Hello, everyone. Um, you can give your name. <laughs> oh, right. Well, they should know that by now. I mean, it's on the cover. True. Well, my name is Connor, in case you weren't paying attention. Yeah, in case you're like, I'm going to start the podcast with the second episode of discussing <sighs> Ghost in the Shell standalone complex. Um, Which, to I just... be clear, there's no problem at all with that. Yeah, <laughs> I just really hate episodes one through six. The whole like world building, ugh. <laughs> so anyway, we are talking about episodes seven through thirteen of Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. Um, I, in particular, I feel like we're going to be talking about episodes seven and eight here. We just have the most to get into, judging by our notes and also just our texts with each other beforehand. <laughs> Um, so I guess, unless you have something else to say, we can jump into episode seven. Uh, I guess I'll say uh, this this does have the potential to be a very front-loaded uh, episode here for us, but the run of episodes that we're looking at really covers a lot of thematic ground. So if we manage to get through all of these, this is going to be a very, for a very wide-ranging, far-reaching type of episode. So... Just bear with us. We're going to try and keep it as coherent as possible. One thing from last time, too, I figure we can like do a slight more recap. I'm not huge on like let's fully recap every event of an episode to talk about it. But um, just listening to when I was editing our first discussion episode, uh, we can maybe quickly go through like what happens in episode seven. Mm-hmm. Um, so this episode's roughly about this person Jardi, who is a revolutionary uh is coming into japan the section nine is trying to figure out why he's coming to japan and uh essentially the reveal at the end and probably one of the biggest things we're going to be talking about here is that uh the actual Jardi is dead or in some way like no longer exists and now uh there are these ghost dubs that are being created 
where there are essentially copies of this revolutionary that come together and sink their identities and then go back to these various countries where they are still in some way acting as a revolutionary, um, or at least like keeping that dream of revolution alive. This is, I I think, especially interesting. I mean, I had some choice of where we're breaking up this series into four episodes. Um, So like there's a reason why I decided to start the next episode, you know, this episode with episode seven, because I think there is like in episode one through six, we don't really see even like the possibility or potential of revolution. Um, Some of the, one of the things we talked about last episode was I think we kind of came to like, there's this tension in the show of on one hand, what can the individual do in the face of governments that have like this degree of control and power over the human body and then at the same time we like end with this kind of weird uh, ideology becoming like this thing that is transmitted and creates this weird spontaneous collective action of these people trying to kill this police chief and this is where the show like first really explicitly then mentions this idea of revolution. Um, although it's still displaced from what is happening in sort of the world of the show itself, which is primarily centered on um, Japan on section nine. And, you know, s- some of the beginning of this episode is almost this question of like, why is this revolutionary here? Um, and a the assumption never seems to be well to like do revolutionary action in Japan. Um, and they like talk about the possibility of, Oh, well, like he's connected to the drug trade. Is he working with the Yakuza? He seems to have some sort of connection with like the organized crime here. Um, and then it's essentially like, yeah, that doesn't like really make sense because Japan's more interested in e-drugs that have to do with like cyberized bodies than these traditional physical, like, purely biological drugs so a lot of it is almost like section nine is just trying to figure out like why are you even here dude (laughs) like there's like nothing for you here um yeah yeah. and i think this episode is a a really interesting one for me i do think it's like aptly placed in terms of coming from like the portrayals of as like we discussed before the idea of like ideology uh being this virus just kind of like being spontaneously generated from like unequal conditions. I think this whole series has a really strong political subtext, but it's not often uh, examined like as such. Like, oh, here's this like political analysis. Kind of by the same token, episodes one through six, they do a lot of world building, but there's not a lot of historical world building. Uh, So much of the history of this world is like, submerged almost and you get it in like snippets here and there in this set of episodes we're talking about tonight we get a lot more but especially in this one um there are these conversations that are had about jardy where it's like oh he was the he was the revolutionary who fought for the independence of japan in this in the guerrilla war and you're just like holy shit there was a guerrilla war like in the recent past like this got serious and it it really reconfigures your your view of of the world that that you're presented with 
Um, and then later we'll learn that there's an American empire. Uh, there was World War III. All of these uh, massive like historical events that you would think would be a little more um, out, uh, explicit or like acknowledged at the outset. Um, but instead they just like emerge in these snippets. And I think uh, this episode, it, it does some really explicit political engagement, not just with that those events, but also with the idea of like political idols or political figures. The title of the episode is Idolater, I believe. And we'll, we'll get more into that later. Yeah, it's, it's also interesting watching this series again, um, especially in this like political moment of 2020, because... When I first watched this, the year 2030 seemed far off um, in a way that it doesn't anymore. Like this series is set in the year 2030 and some of the like future presented about cyberized bodies and everything felt more possible to me back then in terms of like, oh, something that could have happened in 30 years. Whereas like we're reaching the point now where they talk about things that happened to, you know, the major when she was younger, where you're like, okay, well, obviously we don't have the technology that like, even within the show, the major was like being cyberized by 10 years ago. You know, later on, we'll have the like 16 years since the girl was kidnapped who was cyberized. So that's like, okay, clearly this is beyond uh, this like technology in the way that sci-fi often is, um, is like was imagining a greater progress of technology than like what actually really happened in the near future. But then at the same time, I remember watching this back when it was first airing on like adult swim or whatever and being like, ha, like world war two, like, um, not that it was great politically in the United States necessarily. I forget exactly when I was watching this, but that seemed less like a possibility than sometimes it does now. <laughs> um, and so like, there's this, there's this weird tension that's happening where like in some ways the, the tech in this world is obviously less believable. And yet some of the themes like actually hit me harder now than they did when this first came out yeah i i agree i think this is while like it obviously falls prey to this like i think this is almost a universal uh tendency of sci-fi to like way overshoot its projections of like oh 50 years from now we're gonna be living on mars uh and then you know it it, it just like vastly overestimates uh the speed of technological progress it seems like Ghost in the Shell does that a little bit, but in a lot of ways, like, especially thematically, there's a, like, quote-unquote realism to this, like, sci-fi world that I think is, exceeds a lot of others. Like, when I watch this now, it, it just, it seems really believable to me in the sense of, like, I mean, I almost just genuinely believe that, like, when I think about our current time, I, I see our current time as, like, we're getting towards this this world that we see in Ghost in the Shell. Like we're we're in this like precursor era to what will eventually be a world very similar to what we see in this series. Yeah, this like in general, there's just so much with this episode that um, I find fascinating. One is again this 
like I think part of why there's such a great realism and impact to Ghost in the Shell is the fact that it is so good at not just imagining a technology, but also imagining what are the problems that this new technology will then cause. Um, and so some of this that shows up um, in this episode is like, and even at the very beginning, we get that complication of lookalikes who are there to be like almost assassination bait is not new with political figures. And yet what it means to have a look like has changed so drastically now with cyberized bodies where it's literally them like analyzing this figure walking and trying to identify like signs of a ghost, <laughs> right? Like signs that this is uh, an actual human with an entity that is like experiencing phantom limb pain. Um, and there's still like these weird things of just like, you couldn't program a robot to like touch its arm as if it was feeling <laughs> phantom limb pain. Like, I feel like you could still do that too. But uh, you know, that I think that there's also this, thing that the show wants to play with as it goes on with the idea like the very beginning we learn um that jardy was shot in the right arm or i think it they say like there's the like successful assassination and then the group announces that jardy's actually alive and was like hit in the arm or something Mm -hmm. and so then there's like this phantom limb that's the arm and then we like there will be multiple times where these different versions of jardy get shot in the arm but yeah, and as it progresses, we start getting a lot of other interesting things that that start happening, especially as I watch this show for, you know, who knows what number of time at this point. So one is that we have like this growing conflict of interest, these like different government enforcement agencies that are at odds, which is not particularly new to the fiction, but will be like a recurring part of the story as it goes forward. And I think they introduce it in this interesting way where on one hand, like, you know, the, the catchphrase for this podcast, gender is happening. (laughs) Like there was one part that to me, that was just interesting that you know, it's like all these guys basically hanging around outside and everything. Um, and specifically when the like female uh, service robot comes that the major is like, oh, good. Like, here's something that I can hack into. And obviously part of that is like, it's literally just like, it's probably very easy to hack into those robots. That's like the mm-hmm. fully logical way to think about it. But there is also then the reality that throughout this series, the major will continue to choose to like be in the form of female bodies um so this is like another instance of that um there are some things that will complicate it as the series goes on but like that becomes like that feels significant to me on this rewatch in a way that it didn't necessarily the first time i saw it but then also there's this interesting like visual mirroring that we get when the major then actually enters in her own body to help marcello escape from the police um marcello jardy and she like basically has this fight to one of Yoko Kano's like hip hop pieces on the soundtrack <laughs> with these dominatrix like women who you could almost see like their chassis being the same base model as what the major has or being like very similar. The The way that they're portrayed is very similar, even down to the way that um, we get a, a clearer sense of like they are far they're dressed more immediately provocative and like i am a dominatrix i'm like some sort of cd criminal element 
going on compared to like the major is still slightly more like police officer in terms of her clothing but still at the same time has this like this choice to emphasize the sexualized body here's where i'm like going to start introducing some of the film theory um that i'm sure we will like link to for our preview episode to this podcast or to this series of episodes but there are so one piece that i i read um this week was this piece from andre bazen related to the idea of the pinup girl and specifically the pinup girl as being a creation or existence that is distinct from like the erotic or the pornographic and reading it along with the other stuff that I've been reading, which is, you know, what I alluded to in last episode with uh, Benjamin and Bazen and this idea of like reproduction and reproducibility. Um, this piece on the pinup girl is also engaging in this same discussion about how the pinup in comparison to like the eroticism of film or to pornography or something like that um, is something that like desexes the body at the same time that it produces a sexual object. Um, the pinup girl, even in terms of proportions, is one that uh, if you compare to like Bazan saying the Greek woman is not emphasizing like the ability of the woman to produce children. Um, a lot of the like Greek ideal form of a woman emphasized hips and things like those that would be like those sorts of characteristics that would be linked in some way to like the ability to produce a child. Whereas the pinup emphasized the breasts and the breast is a thing that is like not, not the breast as a thing that feeds a child, but just as like a thing that is to be enjoyed and is like purposefully concealed in order to titillate. And it's a funny essay reading because like Andre Bazin's a dude and he's clearly like writing from this kind of dude perspective of like the pinup this is, is how bad. I these. Yeah, this is like how I'm thinking about it. There's some like terrible metaphor about how marketing and stuff has like inflated the bosom to like the stature of the blimp or whatever. And I'm just like, come on, Baza. And like, this is this is not the Baza that I enjoy. Uh, <laughs> but um, there is this thing that becomes interesting because I think the conclusion that Baza comes to from my reading of both like Baza and Walter Benjamin I think is actually at odds with this other perspective that they have on reproducibility as reproducibility being a thing that creates a value. Like Bazin suggests that the loss of this emphasis of the authenticity of the woman as like a being that like exists as part of society and is instead becomes part of like the sexual object is somehow like a bad thing to occur. While at the same time, Benjamin's essay is so much about how the loss of the authenticity of the original work that happens when you do technological reproduction is a thing that like destroys the aura and destroys the authority that artwork has. Um, and that that authority is linked to things like the re religiosity of images, the image as an idol, which here we're talking about the idolater again, but like the image of the idol also that authority is, a thing that is valuable to things like fascism that are trying to create a sense of tradition, um, history as tradition, as things that we have to continue to, that we have to continue to hold up. And as I said, Bazen kind of complicates what Benjamin says, because Bazen, I think, 
rightly recognizes that the aura is recreated in its own way in film um, that like Benjamin talks specifically about montage, but links montage and what would be called decoupage in film as like basically the same thing. Um, these are two concepts that if you're not like super familiar with film theory can be a little hazy. Uh, montage is the act of like assembling multiple shots to create some sort of like meaning that meaning might be the progression of a narrative or it might be something else. Uh, we talked before about like Ziga Vertov who had classified a bunch of different types of montage and the way that you could convey different types of meaning, even between disparate images. Uh, decoupage is literally taking a script or some sort of story and figuring out how you would create disparate images that you can then cut together in the montage um, to then create this like emotional response, this narrative, that sort of thing. For Ben or for uh, Bazen, montage was a thing that could be like both negative and positive, whereas decoupage was kind of always a negative thing because what decoupage was doing was saying, let us create the artificiality, let us like create the fakeness. I think this is where Bazen's coming from with pinup, that the pinup is also like artificial or fake in some way. Um, but let us create it in a way that will then allow us to assert some new heuristic object that will like create this aura again that can create authority, that can create a story that can be used for these like terrible political reasons, you know. Benjamin doesn't seem to make a distinction between the editing that Lenin Riefenstahl did and the editing that like Ziga Veritov did, even though those are for very different political reasons. Whereas Bazen is making a distinction there, like creating this sequence of shots in order to build up like Hitler as a authority and as a uh, image that has this aura, an aura that may not even actually exist in the original is like a deconstructive and and but and reconstructive in this like bad way whereas Bazen wanted film that would through the art of like both long takes as well as montage would make the viewer aware of the fleeting nature of the reality that even in the moment that it was being recorded by the camera was being lost or was passing out of existence for Bazen. Like death was a thing that the recording of death and the repeating of death was like something that you really had to be careful with because if you do not do it correctly, you take like this actual real loss of human life, um, which is also a thing that Benjamin talks about at the very end of the essay on the work of art in the age of technological reproduction, that technological reproduction is also allowing for the creation of like terrible weapons that can quickly end human life. Um, that recording death and presenting it in a way that then like cheapens it or becomes this thing where the the subject continually becomes alive and then dead again is like a terrible thing that any recording or portrayal of death in cinema must like from this philosophical standpoint carry with it the actual weight of something being lost and that you cannot regain it so anyway this is just like me rambling a bunch about film theory but i think specifically a lot of it is coming up with for me, the way that this series is portraying the body 
of uh, Major Kusanagi and the way that then that is also being paralleled with like this idea of ghost dubbing being similar to the sinking of Tachikomas, this idea of the reproduction of Marcelo Jarti being a thing that is creating in some ways this possibility of revolution, but at the same time, like, I don't know, there's there's so much going on here in terms of like that authenticity, the the aura and the authority and how it relates to politics that yeah. it's like uh, all of the like this episode is just so steeped in it. And I it's so hard for me to fully disentangle. What is it saying about the specific character of Jarti and the specific idea of revolution and then how that relates to the major as a body that, similar to the Pinup girl, has been desexed or has been like sterilized, or you know, is an artificial body from this one perspective. But then how is like she in accepting it and taking it on able to go through this act that like creates meaning in the way that Bazen believes in positive meaning that is important for both politics and for the role that art can play in creating a better world, which is, I'm like jumping all around here. So feel free to, to stop me soon. <laughs> no, but no, keep going. We, it's great. <laughs> we, we have this, um, we have this like discussion that happens at the very end where major Kusanagi says that she would take a puppet that came, keeps the dream alive over a hero that fails to live up to that name. And this is such a like interesting and fascinating thing to have the major say, because up until now she has felt so much like a figure who is just willing to uphold the state that she's like a cop of. Mm -hmm. Um, And with this one, it's like, okay, it seems like you're talking about like Marcelo Giardi, who is a revolutionary and you're saying it's better to have a puppet that keeps like the dream alive than a hero who would fail to live up to that. And are you like, are you saying that you want the dream of revolution to stay alive? Because that feels so at odds in ways with how we've seen her depicted up until this point. Um, but it is a thing that we are then going to like in these episodes we're discussing today, return to with, the major this idea of like dreaming of a better world and that that is important um it is important to have that dream and to continue to work towards it in some way so yeah i this is where i'm gonna like throw over to you because i've just been spewing a bunch and i, I want to <laughs> give you a chance to respond but um this has been me like galaxy braiding this week so <laughs> yeah there's just you watch like seven episodes of ghost in the shell and you just have a lot of pent-up energy so you gotta you gotta just like get it out somehow. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm drinking a beer to try and lower my energy a little. Bit, <laughs> I don't know if it's, it's working. not working. Um, wow. Okay, I've got a lot. Of, I've got a lot to respond to here. So I'll I'll just take I'll start with uh, your discussion of like the analysis of like uh, Riefenstahl, like the treatment of Hitler and like Triumph of the Will, for example. I do think a lot of your discussion, it's it's really spot on for um, the treatment of, because I do think this episode has an analysis of political figures and the image of those figures. I think in, I think in a certain sense, there's a very strong sentiment of like, going back to, to Benjamin, like 
images and art might be reproducible, but individuals are not. We see that with ghost dubbing. It's very clear that ghost dubbing is not a thing that's supposed to happen. It destroys the original, uh, the individual in, in some way, whether their their consciousness is destroyed or whether they're truly dead. I don't think the episode shows uh, shows us. It kind of just shows Jardy's body in this state of suspended animation. Yeah, and like a weird bacta tank of... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, 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 of like green uh, of ideology or something. Yeah, um, but uh, Bato does make the comment. Wow, you know, I can't believe he made it through three ghost stubs before he kicked the bucket or or whatever term he uses. So clearly, this is and then that, that's remarkable that he made it through three um, because it's apparently such an unnatural and um, devastating process. I think at the same time we see this throughout our you know normal non-fictional history. There is a, a tendency to turn political figures, especially aspirational ones, uh, into idols. If you think of like Che Guevara is a very obvious one, but this is just a something that happens with seemingly every major aspirational leader. Um, and I think this episode is really showing, again, Jordi is this uh, revolutionary leader who led this guerrilla war, liberated Japan, and... Now he's become an idol um, to the Japanese people and really the the people of the world. The episode kind of literalizes that um, through this idea of ghost dubbing that he's just being copied endlessly. Um, So he's no longer one distinct individual, but he's just a series of reproducible idols or images. Um, He has now become a copy without an original. Precisely, because the original is, you know, dead or destroyed somehow. And I think we, we really see that as well. Um, this could be read as a commentary on that same process in, in uh, non-fictional history, where if you take an, a, a political figure who's a, a human with nuances, uh, private fears and thoughts, and their whole own history, in the process of turning them into an idol, um, they become this static, uh, this static thing. And it, uh, it strips away their, their humanity, um, the reality of their lived humanness, essentially. It, I did think it's significant that Jordi doesn't speak throughout the whole episode. And we also learn later on that his clones are synchronized uh, to prevent the development of individuality, which is something to do with the Tachikomas. So this episode is really uh, engaging with this, with this process. Um, again, this is hinted in the, the title of the episode, Idolater. I think it's really explicitly engaging with this this way that we tend to engage with political figures and how we make them idols, but in so doing, uh, we strip away their their humanity and they become uh, something else entirely. Yeah, I I also like this episode in particular gives me such so much of this tension that it's it's why I this time reached for like especially this one particular essay um that talks about both Benjamin and Bazen and how they relate to each other because um watching it this time I feel such a tension between the world that is being presented to us operates in such a way that feels far more clearly Benjamin where like people believe that copies lose something that the original has. Like that is a, a way that people operate in this world. Um, we're seeing this happen with Marcelo. 
uh, with Jarty here, this like idea that the original has been lost in some way. And now it is this like these copies that are imposters basically. But I think some of the themes that the shows are, is doing is far more engaging with the way that this idea of copies without an original are um, like in their own way then create or become this new type of um, not even necessarily original, but like have this this new distinct identity. And we're seeing that with like how the individual quote unquote of Jarty becomes like the synced thing, but then also the Tachikomas. And I, like, I think the series is engaged with blurring those lines in a way that um, I think the ultimate conclusion of the series is that it actually is not so clear and distinct that the, you know, the copy loses the aura that the original had or the, the copy like loses the full ghost that the original had. I, I think it's like becoming more complex or nuanced than that. The other thing that uh, I wanted to just bring up with this episode that I found so fascinating was especially because I was thinking more about like decoupage and montage this time around. The editing during the final confrontation here is uh fabulous in that it is using these filmic techniques of editing to disorient you to destroy the way that you are thinking about the space where you know the major togusa uh bato they all think that they are trailing the same person and they're communicating with their like neural link but in fact they are trailing different jardies and the way that it is then revealed um Part of why it just hit me so much this time around was because I was thinking about the way that if you were filming this, you would probably have the same actor, right? You like you would be doing the decoupage of how do I break up these shots so that we can film it with the same actor who is Jardy and then have the reveal that there are multiple. But in fact, the whole time, it's actually one person that we're filming. Um, and so we are creating this artificiality. Um, we are like introducing to you the um something that is unreal and we're doing it through editing and montage and in doing so like we are creating this new object that is separate from the reality that is being copied that we are filming whereas because this is animation they are using those techniques and yet in fact the way that it is edited wants you to believe the unreality that there are not multiple that like in the reality of making animation, these are all different drawings of Jardy. Like, they actually are... There is no actor. Yeah, there is no actor, and there is no there is no lie being told to you in the same way of, here's one actor that we're filming and we're making you believe are multiple actors. Instead, it becomes... You are operating from that perspective that we are playing on using filmic techniques, but then the reveal is the actual reality of like, this is a multiplicity of images that we are creating and we are doing it to then like ultimately reveal to you the actual truth, which is like, because this is animation, because this is cyberpunk future is decoupled from the like immediate reality of replication and is becoming something different. And it's, again, this is like me full on galaxy braining, but like it, that just hit me so hard while I was watching this episode of like, this is doing something really interesting with it being an animation that is 
at the same time directly playing with filmic techniques that you could film this and create the same sequence of shots and create the same like narrative and yet because this is an animation the connection that this has to this idea of like original reproduction has like become also complicated in the same way that I think the show is also trying to complicate for us this connection between like originals and copies. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we could devote, there could be a whole parallel like series that we, that we do on filming techniques in Ghost in the Shell. Uh, it's, I mean, it's very dense with different like techniques and devices and we'll, we try to throw in analysis of that here and there just to like, just to highlight some of what's going on and, and really like, I mean, I think I just want to like appreciate uh, every now and then the ingenuity and the genius of like, of the direction and the editing that we, that we get. And actually uh, in episode eight, there's the very start of episode eight. There's a little bit more of that, that I think uh, would be interesting to discuss. Yeah. I think we can, not that there isn't more that we could say about episode seven, but I think we can probably move on to episode eight here. Um, just because otherwise it'll be like literally a full hour of us just talking about episode seven. And then we also have a ton to say about episode eight. So. Yeah. We warned um, you it was going to be a yeah. very front loaded episode here. We're going to have um, like five minutes at the end for every other episode. Uh, that's going to be, that's going to be a fun little mad dash there at the end. Thankfully, I'm not putting hard limits on how long this uh, episodes of the show are. Great. Exactly. Anyway, you're trapped in here with us. <laughs> you chose this. <laughs> please, please, please choose to not. Please choose to not stop listening. <laughs> anyway, we need that. Um, yeah, all the wonderful ads we're getting. <laughs> so, yeah, episode eight. There's lots of gender and bodies happening here. Um, this is a very like. This is an episode that is very heavy on both gender as well as um, the major's body as a thing that the show is like engaged with and thinking about. Again, I'm, I'm going to try and recap things a little bit more than we did last time. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, we, we start off with one of the major's girlfriends that we saw her hanging out with in bed, uh, basically in the hospital where she works, called uh, Major Kuzanagi to come look into some sort of like weird situation that happened where this little girl um, got an organ transplant from a little boy it saved her from having uh, to have her body cyberized Um, and then the parents wanted to thank the boy but then it turns out that they didn't like the parents of the boy did not donate that organ Um, and so it's like okay how did this happen and it turns into basically section nine chasing down some medical students who obviously did a very stupid thing like trying to sell organs steal organs that were going to be discarded and then sell them on the black market um but the show makes sure to comment on uh how over the top especially the major and bato are being in their response and their their way of like trying to quote unquote like scare these kids straight and uh have some fun with it so yeah, this is a this is an episode where I think we we get a little bit more explicit about the major Kusanagi and about her getting cyberized, getting a basically fully prosthetic body as a child, 
and a little bit of a talk about the process, this idea that especially if it happens when you're a child, there's like this greater degree of psychological difficulty, both because your body is not going through a normal puberty and like development process that most humans would have. They literally have to like move you between different bodies to kind of like mimic this aging process. And we will actually see some of the majors like younger bodies later on, both in this episode as well as in some of the other episodes. Um, or not this episode, this episode of the podcast, a later episode that we're going to talk about here, um, as well as ones that happen more towards the end of the series. Like, I know you have a few notes, so I'll let you talk a little bit before I get more into it. But there is, like, this is an episode that has a ton of trans resonance for a lot of reasons. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of let you throw in your piece and then I can maybe talk a little bit more on that. Yeah, um... I'll have I'll just have a couple comments and then I'll let you take it away. This is I mean it, judging just based on the brief recap that you did. It, if people are watching along or even if they're not, this episode is is interesting because the like plot itself is very thin. It's it's really not much of a mystery. There's not a lot of like steps in terms of them figuring out what's going on, and there's not really a huge like juicy reveal at the end it's almost a little bit anticlimactic but at the same time this is one of the most interesting episodes thematically that we've that we've done so far um there's a lot going on in like the interstitial bits of this episode that don't seem directly relevant to the plot but still provide a lot of information and a lot of uh, interpretive like material um one thing that i that i want to just draw everyone uh, people's attention to, especially if you're watching along with us. At the very beginning of this episode, there's this, this interesting camera work, so to speak, of uh, the, the mirror or the glass uh, looking into the, the little girl's ho- uh, hospital room. And there's this interesting mirror effect where um, I think it's either three or four shots that are just swapping back and forth, um, re- kind of reversing the, the frame, the view through this window. And uh, one of the interesting things that happens is when Kusanagi appears in the scene and starts talking to uh, to her girlfriend, there's a, an explicit uh, sequence where there's a shot that's framed uh, uh, of Kusanagi looking through the, the window at this little girl, and then the girl looking back through the window. And she sees the nurse, who's Kusanagi's girlfriend, um, but she doesn't see Kusanagi. There's an interesting effect here where the girl doesn't see Kusanagi, but Kusanagi sees her. Uh, and I think right away we're getting this uh, subtext of this girl has been uh, essentially spared from Kusanagi's fate of being cyberized as, as a little girl and having to undergo this uh, traumatic experience. While at the same time, Kusanagi is, is considering how she was once like this girl. We don't know exactly what happened with her cyberization, but... Um, it's stated that at the end of the episode by Bato that she was cyberized around the same age. So she did once have a full body. And there's a sense of, I don't know if I'd call it envy, but something maybe like like envy or jealousy, more than that empathy from Kusanagi towards this girl of, um, hey, this girl almost went through what I had to go through, but she doesn't have to. That also sets up this idea of kind of haves and have-nots 
which is referenced later on. Um, the idea that there's an inequality in the society of some people uh, have access to organs, some people do not. And there's a sense of inequality here that I think is really very well portrayed um, through the, the kind of camera work in this scene. Yeah. I think the conversation at the end of this episode is very important and we'll probably spend some time there, but I also want to touch on, I, I think before we get to that, it's important to talk about Iwasaki-san or Mr. Iwasaki, Absolutely. who's the, the owner of the company that like grows organs in pig bodies for people so they can have backup organs and is somewhat implicated in this case, um, at least at the beginning. And Iwasaki has chosen to be in a what's called a Jameson chassis, which is basically just a metal box with like little wheeled legs and little arms. It's like a tiny useless Tachikoma. Um, like it doesn't have any, like it's literally just a box. Um, yeah. There's just like a speaker on it. It doesn't even have a suggestion of a face in the same way that Tachikoma have like some suggestion of an eye. It's like the, this most utilitarian of bodies that you could imagine or you know a version of a a super utilitarian body and for me it's very significant and i think the the people creating the show want it to be significant as well um that iwasaki describes this like having this body as one of my masculine quirks there's so much like tied up in this statement one is I think it's an expression of a social reality that exists, which is that maleness or masculinity is societally the default. Um, there's a form of like there's a a perspective within modern feminism and modern like gender theory that talks about how at the same time that we have and there's this value of the multiplicity of identities and labels and things that people are taking on and you know these different gender identities that people can um, assign to themselves and get meaning from the way that society currently operates there are two genders and those two genders are not male and female it is male the default and other and especially when you take this perspective other becomes such a large category because not only does it contain women, it contains all trans people, contains all gender nonconforming people, which can include a great deal of, um, especially historically, I think this, like, one of the things that has been happening in a lot of queer rights movements is especially cis gay men moving into this space where uh, if you are thinking about it from this like perspective, what they have won is the right to be considered men and not other. And that historically they were considered other. And that has become one of the tensions and become one of the difficulties. It's also why so much of discussion that you will see that will come up around, you know, some of it is happening again. The like, oh, the, the gay like people who will vote for Trump and it is overwhelmingly, especially white men, that white maleness can become, especially in our current society, can assign you to that category of male versus that category of other. And so from that perspective, we're getting this thing where having the masculine quirk is 
being able to take the body that is completely unsexed, ungendered, that is this fully utilitarian body, because that is the default and the default is male. And that the female form that uh, Major Kusanagi occupies is, by nature of being other, highly gendered, highly sexualized. It is the opposite of what this Jameson unit is. And that there is this dichotomy that is being introduced here that fits into this perspective of not necessarily how gender actually is, but how society treats gender, which again is like the default versus the other. Um, the reason why I don't think that the show is necessarily embracing that perspective is saying that this like way that society structures gender is correct is because the show also wants to make explicit and has the major in particular comment on the way that Iwasaki is still engaged in a performance. This includes the suggestion that the Kansai accent, or if you're listening to the English dub, the like very Southern like Texan accent is like faked or put on to create some sort of down home, like, Oh, I'm just a, you know, company owner i'm just trying to make a sale here like i'm all charming you know i'm i'm trying to sell you a used car <laughs> yeah yeah i'm just this authentic, but then, i'm just this authentic like you know i'm just this authentic guy that you know isn't up to anything devious and resides in a metal box yeah um and then like also the the fan which is like kind of alluding to some like stereotypes of this kind of man but it like becomes especially comical because it's like doesn't this like chassis have some sort of cooling system and like is it even able to pursue perceive the breeze of this fan <laughs> like it's like clearly he is fanning himself because it is part of like the the performance that he is doing to create an identity and because the show is making that explicit is commenting on it I think is aware that he is just in, as engaged in creating and performing a, a gender or an identity as the major is. So even though these are like these two fully cyberized bodies, there is this, um, and like neither of them are in the literal sense, like have a genetic sex, like literally both Iwasaki and the major could be trans, like our relation to their quote unquote assigned gender at birth is just so completely um, so, eradicated from a modern perspective because of what cyberization means that they, in the way that I, as a trans woman have to still engage with biological sex as a thing that I am actively complicating by taking hormones and so I am sexing my body or like creating biological sex in my body that is different than like what my body would naturally create. This is just like completely blown through with what both Iwasaki and Kusanagi are, are doing. And again, like I don't think the people making this show are like both of these are trans characters, but that the fact of these sort of transhuman narratives and the fact that it is still in some way talking about what does gender mean in like a, a world where there are these fully artificial cyberized bodies is I think because they are talking about these things in interesting ways means that they are also engaging with these like trans resonant themes that are, I just find like this whole exchange is one of the biggest things where I'm like, okay, this show is still intentionally doing something 
even if it's not necessarily the final reading that I'm arriving at. And that's a sign to me that they are engaging with these themes really well because that reading is so readily available compared to a lot of other sci-fi where sometimes you have to work to insert it more. Not that it's not still valid in those other readings, but like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's clear, like, it's clear that the show is, is doing something with it explicitly here. I, I totally agree. I think, I mean, you've you've already, like, brought out so many interesting points uh, of discussion here. I think that this Iwasaki adds another dimension to to this idea of being able to change bodies, uh, the trans resonance that, that you've described in the last episode and, and just now. For me, the, the when I was watching it this time around, I really felt like this calls back to the geisha body swap in the first episode that we discussed before as being like, this seems like incomplete or insufficient in some way uh, as a treatment of this of this idea. I think that this really, um, to follow up on a lot of what you're saying, like this really asks us to think about the significance of like being able to, to choose a body in this world. There's this discussion of like this, the suspicion that the major has of this being a disingenuous choice in some way. Like, oh, he's doing this to present this image for his own gain or for, for business reasons. There's also the suggestion by Iwasaki. He says this is a, a masculine quirk, which like, to me, I got the sense of like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just a guy who likes a classic car, you know? I like an old, like, 1960s Mustang. Um, or, or even like, like, I've known so many guys who are like, Oh, I just want like a cheap used car. I want like the same pair. Like when my shoes, I literally can't wear them on anymore because they're so worn out. I'm going to buy literally the exact same pair because it's like my pair. Not to like rag on you too much, Connor, but oh, like no, your I, whole I, like I, I have uh, I have my like <laughs> my dream wardrobe is like literally all the same black pants and black shirt or whatever. Um, <laughs> That's not even the start on my shoes. <laughs> Yeah, it's like there is this certain amount of masculinity being like not just like tradition in the sense of like, oh, here are the great classics like James Dean or whatever, but like almost this like personal just repetition of like, I found what works for me and I'm just going to keep doing it ad infinitum. And like, I'm just going to do the thing that just feels like most utilitarian because what I care about is like going to work or whatever. Um, exactly. That is what and I like, care about. Yeah. And Iwasaki <laughs> just like embodies this perspective so much. I also wanted to like a quick bring up here that another thing that I, I was thinking of just now here too, with especially the trans resonance angle is the way that there's also a certain amount of like, you know, trans men would take testosterone for reasons that are different than necessarily like a bodybuilder. Like both of them are tied up in gender, but there's also something there. there is a difference occurring there. Also in the same way that something like uh, facial feminization surgery is using the same techniques that someone might 
do to, you know, fix their nose so that they feel like they have a more trustworthy face to make a sale or something. Yeah. And I, I think there's also a similar tension that's happening here with the major looking at Iwasaki and kind of saying like, from this perspective of like, in some ways, I, I, I think the major being this like more obvious trans analog in the story being like, I have had to fight in a way for a body that feels like it is my body. And then here are these other people who are engaged with some of the same things, but they're doing it because they want to turn a better profit or whatever. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I like, think... I'm not saying that I, as a trans woman, am, or am against like cis people getting surgery, like cosmetic surgery or something that's like, not at all what I'm saying here, but I, I think there is still this like this tension of there being some sort of like still feeling uh, of difference between like what a trans person might go through in order to exist in society versus what like some person might do again in order to like better sell used cars, which is very much the vibe that Iwasaki gives off to me here. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there's a lot, there's a lot of tension here. It, as you described, I think just for me discussing this, I, I want to keep it. I, I think there's, there's not a clear answer because I want to maintain um, this, this idea that there's some sort of, there's an integrity in like someone's choice of their body um, when the, like within this series, like Kusanagi, for example, this is heavily treated and we'll, we'll discuss it a lot. Her idea of like the body that she's chosen, um, the choice not being arbitrary. And I don't want to immediately turn around on Iwasaki and say, oh, this is not, uh, and just conclude like, this is arbitrary. I want to maintain like the sense of, th there might be like, I think it's it can be discussed like I think there's some integrity in this choice as well but the show does kind of ask you to think like is this is this somehow cynical his choice of this body like to, to sell product or to give an image that's going to help him sell product is it like fetishistic in the sense of like oh this is my masculine quirk I like classic cars like in this world a classic car is like a Jameson chassis and so this is like a fetishistic choice is it easier to make a like quote unquote fetishistic choice if he has the ability to swap out of this body? Like he could go get a, you know, any other type of cyberized body easily in his position with his resources. So is he not quite as bound to this body or the 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 choice that he's making that someone who an, an actual trans person who has to who has to go through all of these steps to change their body like is in, in a different way so i and and i guess just as a last thought like i think iwasaki almost is like a third if we're mapping out possibilities uh, around this concept in within the series it feels like the guy body swapping with a geisha like when he gets drunk for fun in episode one is at one pole and then Iwasaki is at another pole, and then Kusanagi is like at a third pole. 
where they're all kind of like these three different sites of like possibility that are all in tension with each other in some way if that makes any sense yeah um but yeah i think that we we can maybe at this point now get to this conversation we alluded to yeah absolutely um <laughs> so we have like bato and togasa and the way that the conversation like it kind of starts off with you know there are these two sides of those who are being exploited by the system and then those who are exploiting others you know those who are at the whims of their fate and the medical systems that exist and things like that and then those who make profits off of like the sale of organs and all of that um and bato kind of asked togusa at the end like so what are you are you like worried about which side you're on which seems to be more explicitly getting to a thing that we're going to touch on more as we go on, which is like, how good is section nine or are they a part of this same terrible system? And then Togusa kind of retorts with like, well, I'm actually wondering which one is the major. Cause like, I know what side I'm on. And I, I, th- I think this is hitting more on like, is the major someone who was dealt this rotten hand as you put in our notes, mm-hmm. or is this someone who's like part of this exploiting system? And, you know, I, I think what we arrive at is something a little bit more complex. And again, this is where I feel this, this great degree of trans resonance where, um, also kind of queerness in general, uh, a lot of constructions around the, queer rights, you know, trans rights, uh, rights for gay people, everything like that. There's this argument of like, it's not a choice, which engages with a, like it takes as a fact, the opposing point of view that no one would want to be queer if they didn't have to be, that being queer is somehow a bad thing to be. And the Obviously, when people are saying it, they don't directly mean this, but I think rhetorically it is still coming from the same place of, like, let's take what you're saying as correct, that being trans or queer in some way is a bad thing to be, but these people don't have a choice, and so, like, we should accept them for who they are, and we shouldn't punish them for, like, what they can't control, which is has been a, historically a part of a lot of these like rights movements but it at the same time is at odds with queer liberation and trans liberation as an ideology which says that from that perspective true liberation of queerness and transness operates from the assumption that even if one were to choose to be trans or were to choose to be queer that that is still a valuable um, important like good thing for someone to choose to be not necessarily that queerness or transness is better than like straightness or cisness but that choosing to be that is just is at at, you know like the equal level of goodness as like choosing to be cis that like these things the idea or that the introduction of like we have to this has to be like involuntary to be valid is antithetical to what it actually means to like push for liberation and so i think we're getting a certain amount of that where 
what I see in Major Kuzanagi is this person who uh, the narrative starts from this, like, this is not a thing that she necessarily chose, but then is looking into what does it mean to then still choose that, even if you, to some degree, didn't have a choice, which I think is a process that a lot of queer and trans people have to go through, that that is, in fact, what a lot of, like, loving yourself and, like, moving into a greater appreciation of who you are is actually reaching a point where you are actively choosing to be this thing and not just trying to contend with the fact that you are this thing that you don't want to be because society has told you that you shouldn't be it. And that is, that's like a a difficult process to go through. And then it, it is one that is key to ideas of like liberation. And this is where I most clearly am seeing um, like, it is so hard for me to then not read major Kuzunagi as this trans figure because then when she talks about these ideas of like keeping a dream alive of a better world, it like it's hard for me to not then conceive of what is she talking about as being she is talking about some sort of liberatory existence that feels, again, like at the, at the very least very resonant with what is happening in like queer and trans liberation spaces. Yeah, and this this conversation that occurs at the end here. I think it would be, I think it's difficult to read it in in any other way or to read it in such a way that doesn't acknowledge like the presence of these themes. Just to like add a little, a little bit of like recap because there's there's really like two questions that are operative here at, at the, in this final scene. And I want it to be like, before I go through like the scene, I, I want to like lay them out so there's like, and this is what kind of, as you've alluded to earlier, Togusa says this thing about, oh, well, there's this little girl who was dealt a rotten hand and is, is forced to, to be cyberized. And then there's a CEO who chose cyberization for like, because he wanted to be a cyborg so bad that he like gave away his organs. And then Bato says something to the effect of like, in between those two extremes, the entire organ trade like exists and then there's the the second question uh, from Bato to Togusa of like are you worried that we're on the side of the exploiters or like the med- the beneficiaries from this from this the trade in organs and the trade in prosthetics because they have access to these high performance prosthetics and purchase them and then this final scene here which like in my note I just put this final conversation is bonkers I do think it's worth going through like step by step where Bato's, he's got this weight training experience, or this, sorry, this weight training equipment, um, and Kusanagi comes in and remarks again on the, like, ridiculousness of him lifting weights, this performative masculinity. And then Bato retorts by saying, why don't you just go ahead and swap out your, and, and swap out your model for a male model, because you'll get more power that way. Which... Like, yeah, there's, yeah, not a very nice thing to say. Let's just say, um, (laughs) yeah, and there's a certain, like, I just want to like quick interject here because I think one of the essays I'm going to link to is the Major's Body essay specifically about uh, Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, which, 
again, I don't fully know like the identity that that person's writing from, but there's a, a reading of this scene that is very like, oh my God, this is just like such a cheesy, corny, like, oh, men are like physically superior than women. Why wouldn't she want to be us? And then it's like, well, ha, feminine charms, right? Like the feminine wiles, you know, I'm taking this like hit in power because I can then like be cute and attractive. And that has its own way of like turning, yeah, of like turning masculine power against itself or something. Um, The way that I read this scene, and I, I will let you continue, but is more complex it is more like i don't see the major doing that just being like ha like women can turn men's power back against each other as a thing that she earnestly believes um and i think the the series is tipping our its hand or showing in a way that this isn't something she earnestly believes because of the appearance of her like wristwatch bracelet Mm -hmm. um which we'll learn more of the significance of later on when she specifically takes it off to do this, which in some ways is like, oh, I'm taking it off to like to fight, like let's go. But I think also you could read as this like, I am taking off to conceal or to like in the way that someone might like remove their wedding ring because they're going to do something like terrible, you know, that old trope or something. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like this certain amount of like, I'm going to remove the the real reason for why I've chosen this body because I'm now going to like engage in the stereotype to dodge this question in this moment because I don't actually want to get in with you, Bato, uh, cis man, why I like, why I enjoy being trans. Um, <laughs> I'm not at that level with you yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, is, is a certain reading I can do here. Um, yeah. And I definitely think, well, the, the bracelet is extremely significant here, but so beyond like just the the shittiness of of this response by Bato, which like we we can you know discuss it there's also something behind it which is Bato is essentially asserting a version of togus's option too and again the the dichotomy being between someone who is forced to become cyberized because they were quote unquote dealt a rotten hand and then someone who wanted to become cyberized so badly that they gave up their body, that being cyberized is somehow a benefit uh, or something des- like that they wanted, or uh, someone who wants prosthetics for the benefit or the power that they confer. So Bato is is making a version of this argument that Kusanagi is, is option two, that her motivation for having a cyberized body is somehow related to the power. And she should get a male body, a male version, because it's either more physically powerful or something about, you know, she'll be taken more seriously. Or there's there's some like aspect of that to this assertion. At which point Kusanagi then uh, holds holds up her arm and starts touching her bracelet and takes it off, which you can read in any number of ways, as you pointed out. Um, I read this as uh, preservation, or you could read it as that, uh, even though she isn't intending to really get in a fist fight with him. The idea that this bracelet is something important that can't be risked in a in a confrontation is it, it also seems to work here, uh, especially since the bracelet it kind of evokes this deeper motivation behind Kusanagi's choice of this specific body that we will will learn later. It's discussed later in the series. Um, but this is really a strong contradiction to Bato's argument uh, 
it's Kusanagi in a way reasserting like, no, there is a legitimate, like, non-cynical, non-utilitarian reason why I have this body that's grounded in something else entirely. And after uh, she dispatches Bato, uh, we get the final scene of this episode, which is really uh, rich, which is her putting her bracelet back on, opening and clenching her fist, and seemingly at peace with, with her body and her control of it in this way that feels really, um, I don't know, I don't know what word, uh, what word to use here, but in a way that feels really satisfying. Yeah. Also, I think in a way evokes again, that story that we hear about crushing the doll that then we get reiterated every single time mm-hmm. we watch the opening and listen to the dope ass opening sound soundtrack so good. Um, opening song. <laughs> um, a moment to just, praise the soundtrack of this of yeah. this whole series. Even the like final track, Lithium Flower, which is like goofy but in a great it's way. It's a grower. <laughs> it's a grower for sure. Yeah. Um but like I, I think there's also a certain amount of this like mirroring of the crushing the doll, but then the like you know, I, I think we're getting that certain amount of like this was a body that I didn't choose and that at first i had like difficulty accepting or feeling at home with or comfortable with or in control of and in the same way that i would describe my transition as me resting control of my body away from uh society and the way that society told me that i was supposed to engage with my biology in a way that like very significantly made me feel a loss of control over the body that I was in. Um, dysphoria, it, for me, was this experience of, um, you know, the, the hair follicles in my face were parasites. The testosterone in my blood was a poison. Felt very linked to migraines as a thing that when I have a migraine too, it also feels all body. Like the feeling of dysphoria and the feeling of a migraine as a thing that like, extends throughout the entire body and would shut my body down felt very similar and through transition I was able to wrest control back to myself and get that control again and so again like when I look at Major Kusanagi and I see like I was a girl I did not feel like I had control over my body as this little girl now I have chosen this body in this way and I have like gained control over my body again and like mastery of my body that it has become mine again in a way that it was not previously is again it's a different thing that they're doing specifically around like cyberized bodies and yet so much of the resonance is mapping in this like this way that just hits for me again and again (laughs) well uh we could we could continue discussing this for basically forever. Yeah. So uh, uh, we have like we what, have like 30, five other episodes. Yeah, we have like thirty minutes now. If we want to keep this to two hours, <laughs> um, yeah. Let's just move on to episode nine. This is one that I don't have a ton to say about. I'll let you kind of take over, but I'll I'll do the quick recap again. Um, sure. This is kind of a. So so much of this episode is a visualization of a chat room. There's some 
suggestion or feeling that this is like uh, some sort of buried chat room, but it is this conversation that is happening online that the major drops into. I actually forgot to put this in our notes, but like, again, Major Kusanagi is choosing a feminine avatar here and one that is like... um, very similar yeah that is similar to hers and it is like in some ways perhaps even more sexualized than like the body that she moves around in in the real world which she also presents in a sexualized manner and and this it feels particularly striking here just because like so many of the other people in this chat room who are sitting around like the other uh, women who are in this chat room and are having this discussion are dressed so much more normally and then like here comes Major Kuzanagi and her like fantasy star online ass body <laughs> being like, I'm going to join this chat and then not talk hardly at all, except to occasionally interject and be like, I want to talk to the guy who actually knows anything about what's going on here, um, who you keep talking over. But a lot of the, the chat here is basically like, let's look into what happened with the laughing man. Let's investigate the original incident and the incidents that happened since then and what's currently happening. This is an episode that uh, in some ways is very lore dump or like we have to like get out a bunch of information about the the laughing man and we're choosing to do it in this way where we are also visualizing the experience of like just logging on to some board or some chat room or like some discord and just watching a bunch of people talk and it's just like several people are typing throughout it. (laughs) Um, But it yeah this is there's a little bit towards the end that's kind of pushing beyond it, but in terms of the actual like direct content of this episode, most of it is kind of um, let us unfurl a little bit more about what's happening with the laughing man so that people are caught up on what does society think? What does section nine think? Blah, blah, blah. As this case will then progress onward. There's definitely uh, a strong lore dump aspect to this. I think last time we we talked about this episode, we, we talked about how it it does exposition, essentially. I do appreciate this episode, though. Actually, even more this time than last time. I appreciate, I think this is a clever way of doing exposition by reframing the, the perspective to just a bunch of like random people on the internet. We, we kind of later learned that they're not just entirely random people. One of the the moderators is someone who's at the uh, institution with with the actual laughing man, um, and obviously Kusanagi, and then someone who was virtually present at the the assassination incident a few uh, few episodes back. But nonetheless, like this is a kind of like just a slice of like the general population. Watching it this time, it actually reminded me a lot of some of the stuff we do in our like tabletop games. Especially in like the quiet year where we just go around and we're like, hey, what is, uh, what do like different groups of people in this world think about this event? Yeah, uh, hold a discussion. <laughs> yeah, hold a discussion. Each of you pick a, a group of people to represent. I so, just, I especially love in the quiet year that literally it's like, do you want to do something that's mechanically important for this game or do you just want to hold a discussion? And you're like, I actually do want to hold a discussion. It's going to be way more fun. <laughs> It, it, and it normally is. Yeah. Um, and this time watching this episode, I just kept thinking of that and uh, really was it was really quite enjoyable. There's a couple more things I, I want to say about this episode before we move on, though. Um, the first one is like 
this is another instance of like this dystopia seeming having a sense of realism to it this is one of those moments where i'm like yeah this is totally what it's going to be like in like 50 years or fewer or more whatever but this is a totally like believable modality for online communication in the near future with like vr and forums and stuff just the idea that like people will log in and sit around a table and like talk about the random shit in their like little forum it just seems really believable to me in a way that that's amusing without getting too deep into like the weeds of of everything that's discussed here this episode gives a little background about the laughing man incident if you're watching along you'll know the laughing man incident was this kidnapping specifically something that happened on live news where this anonymous individual, the Laughing Man, threatened the CEO of a major biotech company, Serrano, and tried to make him admit something on live news. And then uh, after that, there was this rash of corporate blackmail framed as, as being an extension of the same incident, all perpetrated by the Laughing Man. The corporation's eventually get public funds, like essentially a bailout as a result of this blackmail. And then mysteriously, the blackmail stops. And then there is a, uh, uh, the reason it's being discussed in this episode is the, obviously the assassination plot and the the hack, the hack of the uh, police chief or whatever the, it's not the police chief, but whoever the, the bureaucrat is at the press conference in a few episodes ago. This All of this discussion does tell us a little bit about um, this society. We talked before about how uh, we're essentially in this kind of technocratic oligarchy where the society is eroded to the point where it's it's not really a functional democracy. It's, it's this corporate technocratic something. And how the laughing man is simultaneously is a challenge to that. Quite literally, it's an individual with these extraordinary uh, abilities presenting a a challenge to these corporations, trying to expose their their deceit. But at the same time, we see this interesting relationship where corporate power has this ability to, um, even a challenge to it, has this ability to co-opt something that's a challenge and turn it around into a meme, uh, an icon that sells merchandise, a pop culture phenomenon that they can make money off of. Uh, and then at an even more uh, insidious level, it's it's implied, and I think we ultimately find out this uh, this way of leeching money from the public by staging all of this blackmail against themselves and then getting a huge bailout. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, dark, actually, episode in that it shows just the, the power and the adaptability of of corporations to co-opt pretty much anything and everything and make money off of it and use it to strengthen themselves in a way that unfortunately is very resonant with our current society. I think also just to wrap this discussion of this episode up a little bit, I think we also get a little bit of this parallel occurring with the first episode we discussed. We get some look into the idolization of the laughing man that has occurred um, within the public 
and both how that uh, idolization can be exploited. Um, but I think there's also this tension, especially at this point where the uh, series is still kind of unfurling this mystery of, again, the copies without an original and this idea of like, are the people who are expressing like, I'm the laughing man, blah, 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 who are doing the assassination. Are these also puppets that are keeping some dream of um, revolution alive? Or was the laughing man, a hero who failed to live up to the name who like, was doing these things getting exploited by the corporation i don't have too much else to say on that like we talked so much about those themes when we talked about jardy but i just wanted to to like quick toss that out here because i think the the show is intentionally bringing up that theme again to some degree because it's something they're going to continue to look into also they're like the show doesn't want us to forget about gender there's still some weird conversations about like what's the gender of the laughing man it was a moniker that was given to the laughing man so we don't even know like at this point is the laughing man male or not and also there's like some weird comments where they're like oh is that feminine intuition like the uh shitty dudes on the internet so yeah um this show doesn't want you to forget this gender's happening <laughs> <laughs> And, and just as a, an added point there, uh, if you haven't figured out already, one thing that we can promise in this podcast is that we will point out uh, every instance of gender happening uh, that we possibly can. So yeah, uh, just be just be prepared for that. Uh, if you catch it before us, you can anticipate it in our next episode. Yeah. So moving on to episode 10, uh, some gender is happening. <laughs> I mean, there is a little bit. It's a, it's like a serial killer killing women. Gender is definitely happening there. Um, yeah, absolutely. This is, you know, we're recording this before we finished our like preview of Ghost in the Shell. Definitely going to have to talk about this episode. I might even call out to some people like... If you don't want to watch an episode that's explicitly about a serial killer who's skinning people alive, there is some graphic content in this episode. And often when this show has been aired on television or in other situations like that, there has at the very least been a content warning before this episode airs. And there have also been times that there people have run this series and just completely omitted this episode. And... Honestly, I think it's an episode of someone that's like, really, I don't want to watch an episode about women being murdered to some extent. Um, you can probably skip this one. Like, all every episode of Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex has interesting things. But um, yeah. this is one that I feel like is less directly engaged with a lot of the, the themes that we've been talking about. Although it does still bring up some of it. And this is also where we get this explicit discussion of the american empire and world war three as well as um so essentially to like quickly go through some of the plot here the cia like there's a cia operative who uh was doing operation sunset where they would go into these south american towns and basically horrifically murder and then spread recordings of the murder and so one of the like cia operatives who was doing this work is now in japan and is just like killing people because he's still living out whatever like weird thing he's gotten into or you know that's one of the themes that this is doing with like how much are people still living through these wars 
Bato was also like had a previous encounter with this. Um, the final reveal is that the CIA is basically trying to use Section Nine and specifically Bato, who has a previous history of failing to kill this guy, to try to get him killed so that they don't have to deal with him anymore. And obviously, like very heavily dealing with, like in real world. American CIA has done some horrible shit in other countries, also within the U.S. as well. And this episode in particular is not pulling any punches with just like how shitty the CIA and America is in a way that I I think sometimes plays into there is a tendency in Japanese culture, especially around World War II, to not fully reckon with the way that they were engaged with in fascism in the way that I think like Germany has had to more directly reckon within its own country with the fact that they did all the horrible things that they also did. So I like this is, this is an episode that has some interesting things in it, but whenever I watch it, there's always a certain amount of, I see that tendency in this episode that exists in Japanese media sometimes and it is a very complex thing because uh, on one hand, Japan was highly victimized and the atomic bombs were a horrible thing that the U.S. never should have done. And at the same time, uh, there is a way that Japanese culture and especially like very right wing current movements in Japan, from my understanding, will tend to use that perspective to assert some sort of nationalism that I don't think is actually healthy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think the. Let me see if I can make an argument for this episode because I, I do agree with everything you've said. Uh, I think I mean obviously if there's if you don't want to see an an episode with this content, skipping over this will absolutely not ruin your experience or understanding of the series. It's not like totally essential, uh, and. You definitely should not feel bad about, about skipping this episode. I do think this episode accomplishes a few a few things, though. I think it, it brings out more of the history that we kind of started getting in episode seven. I think it has some interesting ideas about violence, state violence, and individual violence. Um, and it it helps us understand Bato a little bit better. It's it's some pretty crucial context for his character for me in my notes i I think this this episode engages a lot first of all with the idea of the permanence of atrocity the idea that when states commit atrocities against groups of people that in some way that is that is permanent and the consequences of that kind of continued it to echo through time and manifest in, in different ways and quite literally, the the killer in this in this episode is is like essentially a literalization of that. He's a soldier who was programmed to kill and spread terror. Now he he's basically helpless to do anything else, and continues to just mindlessly repeat this this pattern. I think there's also you could do a reading of this episode. I don't know if we'll spend too much time on it right now, but. You could do a reading of this episode with an eye on toxic masculinity and patriarchy, um, the violence of patriarchy, the way that men, masculinity is uh, weaponized 
and men are programmed, obviously in the context of war, but just uh, in, in general, to, to engage in certain uh, types of violence. And I think it's significant that um, it's never clearly stated in this episode that the, the Operation Sunset was targeting women and children specifically. It never confirms that, but the only people we see being killed are women and children. So the episode's kind of highlighting like this male violence against women and children, how violence is uh, cyclical. And then it's also through the character, through Bato, setting up a potential... The main arc of this episode is Bato wanting revenge or somehow redemption or revenge to kill this killer um, because of the atrocities that he's committing and his own failure to, to kill him years ago. And then he makes a very deliberate choice at the end um, not, not to kill him and instead to let him be uh, incarcerated and to expose like this atrocity to the world, presumably, which is why the CIA wants him dead. So there is something about breaking this cycle of violence trying to find a path forward through uh, the trauma of like this male violence. But with all of that said, if you want more on that, we have a question bucket where you can revisit it. But I think uh, for now we can move on to, to episode 11. So this is another episode that has some, to do the quick recap again, this is Togusa looking into a hacking incident that has been tied to this institution for patients with cyberbrain closed shell syndrome. This is a an episode that as it goes on becomes clear that it's another like let us reveal more about the laughing man case. This becomes especially clear when Togusa is patching out because these people like in, in this institute, they have to control their access to the internet. You know, the original suggestion is that, like, they can't deal with cyberization, but then Marta or Marta kind of says the real issue is that they are too compatible and they will just lose themselves in the internet if, like, given the option. And so while Togusa is patching out, we see this, uh, the same quote that's used in a Laughing Man logo about what I thought I would do is I would become one of those deaf mutes but with the added line of or should I at the end um, we also get a later reference to the catcher in the rye as well I, I think the biggest thing for me with this episode when I'm watching it especially coming from uh, so as part of my day job in addition to doing data management stuff for a industrial supply company, I've also been doing inclusion and diversity work and currently shifting over more specifically to like the company's focusing on racial equity. But a lot of my personal experience is obviously from a queer lens, but I think also especially a lot of trans activism has parallels and overlaps with disabilities activism because I think both of those spaces are engaged with what I call the physicality of oppression or the oppression of the body. A lot of oppression, like f there's a, a perspective there, there's a theory of oppression that I am talking about here um, that applies to most forms, honestly, that it, oppression is about what bodies can look like, what they can do, what spaces they are allowed to be in, what actions they are allowed to partake in. 
blah, blah, blah. And that that is really the way that oppression is enforced. The way that it exists in society is through like the control of bodies in both physical and social spaces because you can't really oppress something that's not like expressed or um, made physical in some way other than just by like forcing repression which is again still this like not allowing it to exist physically and so I, I do this rigmarole to kind of put out there especially when I was watching this episode that I was thinking a lot about disabilities activism and the way that people with disabilities are often framed and a thing that I myself have had to push against when trying to um, or have like run up against when trying to do work around disabilities within my company. Even some things that are claiming to be supportive of a lot of disabled people will often frame it around the orientation of disabilities towards productivity. Um, this especially comes up with autism. There are definitely people who are, you know, coming from some sort of good intention of like, we need to include disabled people, we need to include people with autism in workspaces who will talk about how great and productive someone with autism might be with repetitive tasks. And from like a disabilities liberation perspective, similar to a trans liberation perspective, the value of someone should not be determined by their value to a company or to a government, their ability to produce profit. Um, and so this is like, um, the show is aware of the fact that what this institution is doing is kind of awful. Like we are taking these kids who have this, this, way of operating and existing in the world and trying to gear it towards like how can we create something productive namely the the thing that gets brought up is this like creating barrier mazes that are used by the government to uh, prevent hackers because they can like get so deep into visualizing the code and the data that they can create these incredibly complex mazes that most people cannot get through and there's even this like comment of like oh they would work forever if you let them that is just like gross <laughs> um honestly so yeah i like i wanted to front load a lot of this because i think for you know knowing some of my friends there might be people listening to this podcast who like do disabilities liberation stuff and i in the same way that I think this show has interesting things to say about like gender in the body, I don't think it's fully uncritically engaging with the tropes of the asylum that are being brought up with some of the horror elements here and and things like that. There is definitely a um, yeah, this is an episode that's just like steeped in particular with that aspect and definitely some some interesting things that could be said here and i don't know how deeply i'm going to go into it both because of general time but also because i'm just not as much of an expert on like disabilities liberationism as i am with trans liberationism so i'll kind of leave it at that but that that's definitely front of mind as i i, I go into the episode yet again and go into talking about it likewise i 
I, I think, again, I, I won't say too much other than to like leave the door open for further analysis for someone else who is maybe has a little bit more background and engagement. I, I do think it warrants warrants that analysis, but I just want to agree. I, I think the episode is quite critical, just the way that the let's quote unquote workstations are uh, portrayed as this kind of, it, it almost reminded me of like an industrial milking operation. Um, it's <laughs> as horrible as that is. Um, oh, I think that's what's being yeah. evoked though. Um, yeah, definitely. Or yeah, the like weird, um, a lot of those industrial, like both milking, but also other things around like meat industry and dairy industry. Yeah, with the endless cells, like one after the other, where where these children are being farmed for their labor, it's it's extremely disturbing, and in that, I think that's part of the reason why this episode it it draws heavily on horror elements. It, it's funny we we both had that as a note. We use basically the exact same language uh, to describe it. There are horror elements in genre. Um, there are horror tropes, and then just downright horrific uh, material. I think there's um, just to, to glide over a few of the things. There's an evocation of the horror of the vulnerability that we we talked about a little bit in last episode. This kind of newfound vulnerability of your mind, of your consciousness. Now that we have cyber brain technology that someone can kind of get into your brain in a way that is not possible in our current time. There's this living hell of cyber brain closed shell syndrome. It's kind of gestured towards, but it's described as a pathology, um, an extreme pathological desire um, that can never be fulfilled either for extreme closeness to another consciousness or extreme isolation the the fear of kind of the powers of the super hackers like the laughing man and then obviously the horror of old-fashioned institutional oppression so those are all things that maybe you felt if you're watching along that you you noticed as well but i definitely think that this episode is very rich and, and could be looked at in more detail also like not to call out every time that I'm like, and they're repeating a theme, but there's even this whole thing of like, you got to be careful with the paintings. It can't be duplicated like data. And it's like, oh, here you go with like talking about the original and copies, <laughs> like <laughs> um, especially having watched this so many times. It's just like, I find it so incredible how well the show will weave in ways to keep a theme alive, especially as something that like originally you would be watching every week. And Again, like tying that in with this fact that Togusa is, in a sense, getting so close to the original Laughing Man, who is, you know, always like the name of the boy who's this deaf mute. Uh, people then call him the chief, and he then like appears and is speaking. It's hard for me to like fully separate out, like, is he truly, pre- like, there is that question of, or should I? Um, and some of it is like, is this the right thing to do? But I think some of it is also like, is he even pretending to like have, you know, this cyber brain closed shell syndrome or whatever? There, 
there's just a lot of like interesting things that are going on with like the laughing man as this child who is occupying this institution for some for whatever reason and you know i think we get the like most explicit suggestion that this is probably the real laughing man when toka says like i drew a sketch let's look at my like wonderful handiwork i think i like nailed his likeness perfectly and then it's the logo and the fact that it being this like again so such a totalizing hack of someone's understanding of like the face that they don't even they aren't even conscious of the fact that what they are drawing is this logo they are like convinced that what they are drawing is some sort of real face and how that's actually occurring for them is never fully explained um but it's like is it a thing where their hand draws the logo they still see the real face in their head they still see the real face when they look at what they've drawn or is it like yeah I, the the show is not like fully invested in explaining that which i think is a good thing but um it's a, a another like great little touch here do you have anything else here can we we can move on to episode 12 oh yeah we can we can move on although keeping the door open because episode 11 is it's there's more to be said yeah um i i think also i feel a little bit more okay moving on from it just because i think we can return to some of this episode as the laughing man case unfurls more mm-hmm. so um but yeah episode 12 is an episode that i love a lot even though it's a very bizarre one um we especially i think the first time that you watch this episode it feels like you are getting two vignettes um you are getting the tachikoma going on this adventure with this little girl and then you get this like diving into this cyber brain that they find um that has a ghost in it and is like this movie that people are getting trapped in. And definitely the first time that I watched this episode, it, it felt in the immediate, a little bit more forced to like, Oh, this is like two ideas for an episode that they couldn't quite flesh out to a full episode. And they like combined them into one. But the more that I've rewatched it, the more I've been like, there's a, there's a reason that these are both happening in the same episode. And there are interesting parallels or connections happening here so i i think just in terms of like what happened in the episodes though that's fairly they're fairly simplistic uh the tachikoma bato's tachikoma isn't sinking because of the natural oil that bato gave it um and also the fact that he is intentionally choosing the same one every time and that's like created some kind of individuality that hasn't happened with the other Tachikomas. And so rather than sinking, it goes out on this adventure. So I just want to make a note that like there are major Kino's journey vibes here of like this young person and then a robot that talks to them. I'm sure we'll do Kino's journey at some point because there's also a lot of gender happening there. <laughs> um, we will leave uh, no gender unturned. Yeah, but I... I think it's also part of the reason why I have such immediate fondness for this episode because I love Kino's journey as a whole so much. But we we do get this like multiple children, the Tachikoma is a child that is learning about the world um, and is learning about it from this little girl who's in some ways more mature or like understands more about the world. 
And then we also get the major who is watching from afar within one of her younger bodies. She like still has one of her old bodies or something and is switching into it. I guess big spoilers if like you didn't know that that was the major when you first watched this episode. Um, I think it's fairly obvious, but they haven't stated it explicitly. Although they also very heavily imply it with like her being totally up on everything that happened and also knowing like they're like, where did this Tachikoma get this brain case? And the major's just like, go find the vendor, tell them to like stop it. Yeah, I, I think um, Bato is even like, damn, how is the major so on top of everything? And they're all just like, oh shucks, I don't know. But yeah, the I think the biggest things that I want to talk about here. One, there's just like a few small touches um, that happen. There is like the Tachikoma using Aramaki's voice to pretend to be the girl's dad is just such a like good scene. It's like that's just a very funny scene in a show that often is not quite as like directly humorous. And I think also like introduces this weird tension of the Tachikoma throughout it being extremely childlike and then being able to like so quickly put on like a performance of adulthood is like I I think intentional and interesting here. And then we of course get also like the story of the goldfish, uh, the secret goldfish. This girl tells the story about how this girl had a goldfish and wouldn't let anyone see it. It was because it was dead, but she didn't want people to know that she knew that it was dead and that like she was sad about it. She wanted to spare the adults of that. And it kind of being the story of like a weird stage of moving from childhood to adulthood that I think is somewhat thematic with some of the other things that are occurring in this episode. But the part that I find the most fascinating is when they finally go so the little girl's like looking for her dog throughout it and the story of the secret goldfish is her revealing to Tachikoma that she always knew that um Loki her dog was dead and like just wanted to go to the gravesite and see Loki and so while the girl is sad about the death of her dog Tachikoma is talking about like well I don't have a ghost so I don't understand death and so like I also can't really understand sadness and while the Tachikoma is saying this is mimicking crying like oil starts leaking from the weird uh, bowling ball eye that the Tachikoma (laughs) has and there's a certain amount at which you can read this as like direct mimicry like are these Tachikomas designed to mimic human uh, reactions and emotions in order to be more relatable or like connect more with the humans that they're supposed to work with? Or is this Tachikoma actually in some way involuntarily crying while talking about how it doesn't understand death and sadness? And I think that reading stands out to me more because of this second episode about this uh, director's brain. Like he basically has his brain case that people can plug into and go see this like incredibly long movie that never ends that he is continually making in his head. Um, and people are getting trapped there, not because of any virus or anything, but because they want to continue to watch the story and engage in this escapism. And when the major is watching it, she also involuntarily cries, which I believe is the only time that we'll see her cry in this entire series. Yeah. And so I think the, the show is having this in the same episode because those two moments of involuntary crying are actually significant, even though it feels kind of comical and jokey 
when you first see it with the Tachikoma. It's still important to have that parallel with then this like more intense, clearly emotional human response that the major has. So a, a lot of that, like, what does it mean to have a ghost? What does it mean to make a ghost? What does it mean to have these emotions? And like, to what degree is that separation that is the, that the society is saying exists between Tachikoma and the major real or not real is like the key heart of this episode. And I, I think them also tying it to this idea of childhood and like moving beyond childhood as a way to further extend or like draw out that metaphor. I think that's a really, that's a really good concise way of, of bringing out the connection between these two narratives. And just as you were like talking about that, I, I was making some realizations on my own end as well, because one of the note, one of the things I put in the notes was like, you know, let's discuss like why these two narratives are smashed together. We essentially have this like Kino's journey narrative and then this like infinite chest narrative of the like never ending film that's so spellbinding. Um, I'll see if I can like set up these uh, these connections that I think are are present in a way that, that makes sense. So first of all, like just to, to bring out one other point, another connection between like the two aspects, these two narratives is um, the fact that the Tachikoma like links with this brain case in which the, the director's ghost is present and where the infinite jest film is basically playing continually. And when the Tachikoma links with it, uh, there's this really interesting, like, abstract moment where the Tachikoma says, oh, like, I am you and you are me. Oh, there's a ghost in here. So the Tachikoma has, like, linked with the ghost. And I guess, and we can probably deduce that or uh, speculate that maybe there was some exposure to to this film. I think this episode is kind of setting up, like, what are the ingredients to, to make a ghost, if such a thing is possible. The ingredients to make a ghost seem to be some combination of, one, the, the natural oil, uh, which, as Bato points out earlier on, is, quote-unquote, an expression of love for our machines. It's also mentioned that Bato babies the this Tachikoma. So there's some sense of love and nurturing that is represented by this natural oil. The other major event is the linking with the the cyber brain of the director, the development of empathy, the sense of like, I am you, you are me. Uh, and then finally, there's an understanding of death and grief that seems to be acquired through the interaction of with this little girl. And in this analysis, like, I'm just going to, presuppose that the Tachikoma does develop a ghost here because I think it's it's interesting for discussion. But in this moment that you talked about the involuntary tears from the Tachikoma, I think this is significant because in a way that's different from the Tachikoma mimicking Aramaki's voice, having oil ooze from its eye is clearly not a normal function for this machine. It's not something that makes sense or is supposed to happen. It's something that is 
somehow outside of the the intention of the system. So I think that there is this, if I can use the term, there's like a, a hu- uh, humanness to to this action. And again, just in my analysis, like I'm just going to say this is a sign of the development of a ghost. And there's this kind of irony as well to saying I don't understand death and sadness when in fact it it's strongly implied that the Tachikoma does have some fundamental understanding at this point. And then also saying I can't die, which ultimately it will uh, in a few episodes when uh, the Major decides to erase the, the Tachikomas and resync them. And there's a, a big discussion about that at that point. Um, as a last thought, I think there's something that we could say about the, uh, the power of narrative. You talked about the story of the secret goldfish, how it kind of potentially helps Tachikoma understand um, death and grief. And then at the same time, there's this, this filmic narrative that produces this emotional response in Kusanagi and that the Tachikoma was also exposed to. So there's a really interesting submerged uh, discussion of like the, the power of narrative that we could have, but maybe on another day. <laughs> I think also there, so one, there's like the, there is this thing about death and, you know, in one way they're going to die. And I think also, it's been a little bit since I've watched like the final episodes, but I feel like even like when we get to episode four, we might be talking about this idea of the Tachikomas dying again, because I think it figures in some of the final episodes as well um, without like getting more into it. But yeah, I find like there's even this moment. So shortly after this conversation where the Tachikomas like, I can't even understand sadness. They're then heading like the little girl and the Tachikoma are heading home. And the Tachigoma's like, yeah, your parents are probably sad that you're not there. And it's just like, you were just talking about how you don't understand sadness. And now you're like projecting an understanding of sadness that you seem to have on like, oh, people are sad when there are like sad when people that they love aren't around. And it's just like, in some ways, I think the show is already starting to touch on this, like, what even is the distinction between like if the Tachikoma can understand that, then how is that different from like a different quote unquote, deeper understanding of sadness. And again, like there are so many overwrought sci-fi pieces about robots becoming humans. And I feel like this show like can do a, a silly goofy little like, a girl and a robot going on a slice of life adventure to go see a dead dog. <laughs> um. Which I'll be honest, like I might have cried a little bit. Yeah. I might have um, cried a little bit. And like, you know, it, it can do that and do it in a way that's then engaging with these themes. Like I, I just, I love how the show engages with stuff in, in such a often not heavy handed way. Uh, finds interesting ways to talk about it without like bludgeoning you with like robots can become humans, uh, <laughs> you know? And it's like, I, in some ways I think I often find that the show is less interested in immediately trying to ask the question and provide some sort of answer and is more interested in showing you the interiority of characters who are, currently through their own lives like having to 
uh, wrestle with these questions that sci-fi wrestles with. I think that's part of why Ghost in the Shell does it so well is the show is not like, is the Tachikoma a human or not? The show is like, let us look at Tachikoma going through a process of perhaps becoming more human. And like, what is the Tachikoma thinking and, and saying and doing as this happens, which is like I, part of why this series just rings so true and, and hits so well for me. I have, my other little note is like, I don't think that the Tachikoma diving into the brain and that like thing of I am you, you are me is a direct reference to persona where that's like a big <laughs> catchphrase. Um, the persona games, that's every time someone awakens to a persona, they say, I am you, you are me. It makes me wonder if there's some other thing that both of these are referencing that exists in Japanese culture. I actually, when I was watching this episode, um, it was like, I was having difficulty being able to just have the subtitles on because I had to look away sometimes. So I switched over to English. I'm actually like for my own curiosity, going to pop this DVD back in and go like, okay, did they actually do the like warewa, <laughs> <laughs> like the exact same wording that persona does, or is it phrased differently? Yeah. We're, so, we're crowdsourcing this one too. So yeah. go find it out for us and then, and then report back. So we don't have to do the work. But I think just to finish out episode 12 here, there's definitely like, I want to talk a little bit more about the majors side of this story and like going into the cyber brain. We talked a a bit about escapism and like the major saying like escapism is like folly that these dreams are only meaningful if you are pushing them towards reality. And I think in some ways uh, you can read it as the major saying like that, especially the comment of the director of like, if your world is ever realized, will come out. And I think we're getting this tension of the director perceiving utopia as a place that has arrived at and major Kuzanagi having this other understanding as utopia, as a process, as a continual attempt to, make things better Um, a continual dream that you work towards even if you may never achieve it that in the working towards it and in the continuing to push towards it you are achieving some form of utopia even if it's not the like final idealized utopia so like this ties in a lot i think with both the comments about you know the puppet that keeps the dream alive versus the hero that fails to live up to live up to the name that I think for we are seeing throughout these uh, seven episodes that we're discussing um, the major continuing to assert this view that the pushing towards like a better reality is the most important thing. And that the things that serve that are like in some ways she's taking this utilitarian view that is how do we continue to push towards some sort of better reality? And again, I feel like the show in the episodes we've watched so far hasn't fully had the major have to like square that against this fact that she is also like behaving as a agent of a cruel and horrible state. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I just wanted to... I mean, that might be a great transition point to episode 13. I'll just like quick interject. I love the like 
major being like Bato, did you ever cry at a movie and Bato being like oh let me think um oh i watched a marx brothers movie once and i laughed so hard i cried and the major just being like okay Bato, yeah. like, <laughs> like oh that, that makes sense yeah that that tracks for you <laughs> <laughs> and then Bato being like so do you want to go to a movie and she just her just being like nope <laughs> Uh, I only go to movies that I really want to see alone. What about movies you don't really want to see? Well, I don't go to them. <laughs> yeah, and Bonner's yeah. just like, ah, uh, I've been foiled. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I I think especially if we're kind of me talking about the major being the arm of a cruel and oppressive state, we get this next episode where, again for a lot of this show, there's not like a ton of violence that's happening from section nine. And then in this episode, we just like watch them murder a hundred people. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, this episode is, um, it's a bizarre episode too, because there's a certain amount of like, to why is section nine fully involved in this? I mean, some of it is they're trying to like recover someone who, um, but also seems like that person like fumbled into the scenario. Um, Essentially there's this human liberation front, which is one of the first groups to oppose cyberization. And they kidnapped this girl, Eka Tokara, who it was the daughter of like the CEO of this company that was pushing cyberization. And they had her like get cyber implants in order to promote them. And, it's been 16 years, I believe, is the yeah. the time frame given. Um, she was 10 at the time, so she would be 26 now. But there is this little girl that looks just like her. And so that some of it is the mystery of, like, what's going on with this little girl who was kidnapped 16 years ago but doesn't seem to have aged at all. Um, and then the, like, reveal at the end is they never fully explain. It's kind of implied that she is a clone of the original girl. Or it like, or her daughter, you know, she refers so no. to the original girl, the the new little girl, as her mother, um, and they never fully explain like, is that just she looks a lot like her mom, or is this cloning because cloning comes up as a discussion point here, but that the original little girl has become the leader of this group, but is also rapidly aged, um, which is another thing that the seri- like this episode doesn't really explain. I watched this episode today with my wife, Emily, also watching it, and she was just like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> and I was like, okay, one, this is like when I come in and you're watching some, like, I haven't seen the first eight episodes of Riverdale, and then I come in and watch episode nine, and I'm just like why the fuck is Jughead in a gang or whatever? (laughs) Um, But also this is just an episode that explains itself a lot less than some of the other ones. It kind of leaves the central mystery open or like replaces one mystery with another. But yeah, we also just get tremendous amounts of section nine killing the quote unquote terrorists at the end. And I, I find it, particularly like it feels particularly egregious and it's also something where the show seems to be aware that there's this discrepancy and this police brutality happening because especially the Tachikomatic days which we often don't talk about but like the next time on for this show is essentially these little shorts that are actually recapping the previous episode 
that you just watched and is essentially like some sort of visualization of how the Tachikomas are syncing up and processing the information from the previous episode, um, but also just kind of played as like a cute little scene in many cases. And in this one, it's like literally one of the Tachikomas throws a little ball and it bounces off the other one. And then the other one just like in a series of gratuitous shots, like different framing, just completely unleashes this Gatling gun and riddles the Tachikoma with holes. And then it's just like, ah, we're just playing at it. (laughs) Um, And seeing that Tachikomatic days at the end makes me feel like they are fully aware that they are showing a like grand discrepancy of power between section nine and these quote unquote terrorists and the over application of force that section nine does, even as they are commenting on like, Oh, they're using some pretty intense rounds. And then they just like launch missiles at them and just blow up a bunch of people. (laughs) Um, Or they're just like, Oh, just like shoot the lines. They're like, let them fall to their death. Like, uh, yeah, this is uh, a bizarre and intense episode with a whole lot of police violence. Yeah, it really is. I, I think I think you've you've recapped it pre- pretty well there. It does feel almost. Um, I mean, you could see it as a as a hard dose of reality in a certain way. We're talking about these uh, maybe this development of a kind of utopian streak in Kusanagi's worldview. Bato's statement in the Jungle Cruise episode about, oh, I'm breaking this cycle of violence because I chose not to execute this serial killer. I'm a cop now, so that means that I'm, you know, I'm on the side of justice and so on and so forth. And then they, they just perpetrate this massacre, which, again, I think it's... I think the show... The, the way that it's presented filmically, the way that the battle is lingered on and drawn out, ev- pretty much every casualty is portrayed. It, it stands out for the series. Like you don't, just like, as you said, it, you don't get a lot of firefights with a lot of casualties, especially up to this point. It, it seems like um, this kind of cold hard dose of reality of like, oh yeah, no, Section 9 is their super police. And, like, they use extreme force. The terrorists in question here, they haven't done anything to, like, provoke this this raid. They basically, the reason for the raid is that Eka is photographed and everyone is like, oh, what's, the, what's going on here? Now, obviously, uh, it's strongly implied that these, that the terrorists have, like, done... Uh, some horrible atrocities to to Aka uh, um, to make her age so quickly, but as far as like the to provoke this raid, they haven't really done anything. And yeah, and beyond that, it's just a complete massacre, which goes totally unremarked by any of the people in Section Nine. None of them seem to have any awareness of the extremity of this action. So I think it's just another another factor that kind of complicates. Our understanding of them and in a certain way like encourages a critical encourages this critical separation of the viewer from like the protagonist yeah I, I it was interesting when you that you said that it was implied that the like terrorists did something to age Eka. I think I've always read it somewhat as like 
we get previously about how it is difficult to be cyberized at a young age and this like need for upkeep. And part of me was like, I wonder if this is almost like the cyberization, like partial cyberization of this body taking a toll on it, especially in that it's like not being up, kept up because it is this group that is against cyberization. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, they're not going to like continue to update the technology and whatever else is going on in Aka's body. And it's also why throughout so much of the series, we see like major Kusanagi plugging into other people to get some sort of like reading about what's going on and to come to some answer or conclusion. I mean, it's part of why I I think there is this intentional decision in this episode to, I, I don't think major Kusanagi connects with her. Yeah. It, there's no scene that shows it and when it's brought up like what happened she kind of just says like well you could connect to find out um (laughs) and bato being like "Mm, i'm not gonna do that and you know you could read this as her like having done it and she's fine but she's just like teasing bato but i i really do think that like major kuzanagi didn't do it and there's a certain reading to me here of like Perhaps she explicitly didn't do it because she does not want to have to see the experience of someone who had to deal with something similar to what she had to deal with, but that came that arrived at like a far worse or like mentally detrimental conclusion that the major went through the cyberization process and has gone through it in a way in which she has come to accept her body. And like what it means to inhabit her body. Whereas this girl who's become the leader of this group has perhaps been like traumatized by the process in a way that even as they're like, "Eh, if anyone could do this, it would be the major major Kusanagi is like, no, I actually don't want to live that experience. (laughs) I don't, I don't want to know what that side of it's like because I've arrived at a, a place where I am happy with what it means to be cyberized and i don't know i don't want to know why someone would have the process of cyberization happen to them and then still choose to be a leader of a group that's against it because for me it has like become something that is fulfilling in some way so that's like the reading that i i had on this to such a degree that like i in my own mind had completely ignored any other potential readings of like why did she age so rapidly which again the this episode does not explain in any way. Yeah, I, I agree with you that um, it definitely, I think it's strongly implied as maybe even too weak. I think it's pretty clear in my reading, at least, that like Kusanagi doesn't connect with her. There seems to be like this almost statement by absence. Um, we see her connect with the, uh, or, or like attempt to connect with the like little Eka, the clone or the daughter. And then she can't. So, but but then you know she she's not shown like being like oh wait like I can't connect with her. Let me connect with the one I can actually connect with. And since that's not shown, I, I think it's like. And then in conjunction with like the how so much is made of the danger of connecting with her, I, I agree with you. It it's, it really seems like she doesn't. And I think regardless of how we read the events that led to the aging, there one thing I did take away from this episode is this series is, is constantly exploring the different dangers of the vulnerability of consciousness that this technology allows. 
And we see another here, um, the uh, the agents that are sent in before Section 9 arrive. I guess there's four sent in, three of them are killed, and then one is found who who's just, like, suicidal because he has linked with Aka and now has her memories, and they're uh, apparently so traumatic that he he just, like, immediately wants to die. So in this... In this uh, figure we get another like portrayal of the dangers of mixing consciousness what does it mean to have another person's memories what is the danger of that i think it's it's clearly significant this also is a significant foreshadowing for something important that happens later no spoilers though so that's my uh my final takeaway from from episode 13 yeah the the other like I, I just have to bring it up. There's this weird comment from Ishikawa about Bato. One, there's like Bato feeling this need to rescue the major, but then Ishikawa also refers to her as a she-ape. And I'm just like, like there's so many other parts where gender happens where I'm like, this is interesting. I see something going on here. And this is where I'm just like, like what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> like what? Like, Ishikawa calling the major a she-ape just feels far more like a weird like oh there was like a slur or something like (laughs) I don't know it's just bizarre and I like I I just feel a need to call it out in part because for so much of any other time gender happens here I like it fits in with some deeper resonance or theory or something that I have going on. This is where I'm like, if you are a listener and like you got something out of that, please write in about it because I have like no fucking idea why it happened. <laughs> I don't, why did Ishikawa call her a chi ape? I <laughs> yeah. There's, I think there's a whole discussion that we could have about this, like this banter that occurs like to me this is reminiscent of like Bato the conversation that Bato and the major have at, in episode eight where he's like oh why don't you just take on a male like body where it's like it's really pushing crossing that line or like pushing I mean it's it's in this like insulting banter that I don't know if uh I, I really don't know how to like interpret this if it's like oh you know they're like because they're clearly close like friends and colleagues if this is something that like is is just like really risque like provocative banter or if this is just like extremely <laughs> insulting or both yeah it, it feels particularly weird to me just because so often when something like this happens they will like give the major a chance to respond in a way that she just doesn't get here other than kind of just being like when Bato shows up being like what did you think I needed to be saved yeah is like the most that she gets to respond but she like especially in the moment doesn't get some sort of more uh direct response and it yeah the it just like it's weird <laughs> yeah like is this something that like in any like context of like friends bantering would like ever be acceptable or do we just say like this is just outright like insulting and like messed up so i uh, i don't yeah i don't know 
So I don't know if you have any other final thoughts. I mean, I, I put some quotes from Walter Benjamin in a little knee of bullshit section, but I'm not going to read them here. I just like had them in there in case I needed to immediately refer to them. One of it is just a, a very interesting quote that stood out to me that where Benjamin like specifically takes what he's talking about with reproduction of art and then just like talks about it being any object or is like, Oh, this is like most directly talking to like human bodies being replicated rather than like extinguished, which is what Benjamin talks to more directly throughout this. The other one I just pulled because of the specific, the shelling of the object from its hole. And I was like, ha goes to the shell. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I don't have like anything else specifically to talk about with that in the notes it was more in case i needed to pull it up while thinking during other episodes so i don't know if you have any final thoughts before we wrap this episode up no i think we uh we've we've tacked on an hour to our runtime and i'm satisfied three star runtimes three star podcast (laughs) (laughs) yes you're you're welcome all of our adoring fans an extra hour of content for no added no uh no added cost yeah so don't forget to rate and review us on itunes i don't actually know what that does but all the podcasts tell people to do it it's somehow important i don't know why do it though yeah next time we will be talking about episodes 14 through 19 um i've debated on whether or not to include 20 i think when we first recorded this podcast we were planning on doing episode 20 this time through I think it's a little bit more of a cliffhanger and I would rather just talk about it in the context of like the finale. So see you, see you next time we can like run through some of the final things. Thanks again to export audio network for hosting us. People can go to patreon.com slash export audio and find other podcasts there and give money to the network support my friends who probably need it more than I do. You can find me at uh, Nia on Twitter, uh, also on Instagram. So the podcast is Ghost Divers Pod on both Twitter and Instagram now. So I, I know, Connor, you, you seem to use Instagram a tiny bit more than Twitter. But where can people find you? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at uh, Rabelais, R-A-B-B-L-E-A-I-S. I actually misspelled my own Twitter handle uh, in the last episode, so that's quite embarrassing. But... This one is the correct spelling. So yeah, uh, feel free to follow me and uh, bask in the lack of content. And uh, you'll you'll probably find a little bit more on Ghost Divers Pod if you go to that Twitter account because I run it. So, you know, I've been, as we were recording these, dropping little like teasers. So the, the one for previous to recording this episode was just me tweeting a picture of a stack of Bazen books. So... <laughs> Hopefully I delivered on the promise. I think you did. But we're going to have like we're going to have our question box just like slammed full of people clamoring for more Bazan. Yeah. I know it. People are thirsty for this. <laughs> they, yeah, they are, you know, trending on Twitter right now actually. Bazan. Everyone's asking what is cinema? <laughs> how how does the aura recreate itself in cinema? It's the hot topic right now. You you know us. We're always on top of those trends. We are. That's why we are talking about Ghost in the Shell standalone complex in 2020. <laughs> yeah, we really actually we picked our um, we structured this whole podcast around old anime 
to maximize our, our exposure and ad money. We ran some algorithms and it showed that old anime is the most profitable, you know, uh, subject. So that's why it's really goodness. I think that's it. I think so too. seems to be working well so i'm gonna move these again i'm in a closet and there's a bunch of hangers and they're like some of them were in a way where i bumped into them twice so (laughs) yeah so yeah if there's any hanger noise we'll just like make an apology on the next podcast like sorry those were close hangers I do like the joke that I'm doing this podcast where I keep talking about like queerness and how it relates to anime and I'm doing it from within a closet. Um, it feels very appropriate to the, some of the things that I think these older anime that we're watching, the resonance that like exists in it. Um, like I feel like so many of the anime that we're going to watch fits into this thing that I think existed in like especially when I was in high school in the Midwest which was like the you cannot speak of it like queerness is acceptable in that it remains closeted even when like it is merely people keeping up an illusion and they like are aware that they're keeping up an illusion I don't know if I've told you this before but when I first met so uh Emily's uncle and also aunt like her mom's both brother and sister are gay Mm -hmm. and i did not know this until i literally met both of them and first i met her aunt with her friend that her aunt lives with in a house with 20 cats and afterwards (laughs) i was like i didn't know that your aunt was gay and emily had grown up so much like my household talked about queerness or like talked about gay people at least transness wasn't on the radar but talked about like people being gay is a thing that happens and exists and is fine um and that was like not what emily grew up with like hearing that at all and so at first when i was like i didn't know that your aunt was gay or like a lesbian emily was like my aunt's not a lesbian i'm like she lives with like her live-in friend in a farmhouse with 20 cats (laughs) 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 and you call both of them aunt yeah yeah that's such like 
it's it's almost amusing how like much of a universal pattern that is because like I've had two girlfriends who had like an aunt who had like a live-in friend who like lived with cats yeah and where they were like I mean I guess it's not amusing when you when you really think about it but like where but the families were just like completely <laughs> hey oh, hey Craig were the but the families were just like it was completely unstated like it was unable to be like discussed but yeah I've I've had two girlfriends who like had the same exact dynamic in their family well, while you were talking, I did the Craig is recording backup, so we've got that going now. The thing that oh, I... Trusty old Craig. <laughs> the thing about Craig is that Craig does not record its own audio channel, so there's no way to get Craig saying now recording, unless you like somehow patch the audio that you're getting through the headphones like into a recording thing. So I just always think it's funny that... like. There all there will be a moment in so many podcasts if someone's using Craig as a backup where someone's like, "Hey, Craig." <laughs> yeah, we'll just have to imitate it. Yeah, now recording. Now recording. Um. All right, let's do time dot is for this clap. Okay. Um. Do you want to do nine thirty two thirty? Um. What the what the hell? Um. Sure. Okay. Oh wait, I mean, I'm nine thirty two thirty. You're um, yeah on on the thirty seconds. Okay. Sounded good. Yeah, I agree. And I'm just scrolling through our notes for eight. It was a lot, and we didn't even like touch on everything either. <laughs> yeah, there are definitely parts where I was like, "Eh, we'll skip yeah. this." <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think Emily is has already gone to bed or is going to bed. Okay. So I'm gonna stop yeah, recording. We can talk more tomorrow. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, I will. Uh, I'll talk to you then.